Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. for joining us today in February's New Books Network in Fantasy and Adventure. We'll be discussing A Queen in Hiding by debut author Sarah Kozlov. It's the first in a quartet of the Nine Realms series. So first, my review of A Queen in Hiding. And something you need to know about this book is that the follow-up books will be released monthly. So if you like the book, You can read the other three within, before it's spring even. In The Queen in Hiding, Sarah Kozlov does her world building gradually and carefully, introducing you to a few characters you get to know and care for before moving on to other lands and cultures. The land of Warrendale is ruled by a line of queens with unique magical talents which are granted to them by Nargis, the spirit of the water. We first meet the future queen in hiding when she is a child, granted a menagerie of pets by her fond mother, Queen Cressa, who tries to spend as much time with her as she can while ruling. Cressa is perhaps not temperamentally suited to be queen, a somewhat retiring and innocent person by nature. She is unprepared for the machinations of her chief counselor, Matwick, who wishes power for himself. After an assassination attempt, Cressa conceals her daughter's identity through magic, sending her to live with a family who is unaware of her true identity. Her daughter, Cerulea, likewise is not ambitious, nor does she show much desire to lead. She does, however, have a kind heart and will fight for her friends, if not for herself. But the world at large has even more serious problems than the fate of Cerulea, who is orphaned halfway through the first book and must rely on her magical gift to see her through some tight spots. In another country, ruled by eight terrible magi, food shortages have led to their army invading a peaceful democracy to free states. Thalen, a student, must use his analytical and curious mind to come up with a plan to rescue his plundered country from the ruthless invaders. How the story of these two, Cerulea, the queen in hiding, and Thalen, the son of a pottery maker, connects, is not yet quite revealed, but with the four books of the series being released monthly, you won't have to wait long to find out. As thoroughly as the groundwork has been laid, the plot developments will surely be worth the purchase of future books. So a little about Sarah herself. She spent her life immersed in literature, narrative, and film. After a degree in English at Dartmouth, she worked in film production in New York City. She earned a PhD from an interdisciplinary program at Stanford University joining the film department at Vassar College, where she was awarded the William R. Keenan 
Jr. Endowed Chair. For more of her official bio, you can visit her website, sarahkozloff.com, and her last name is spelled K-O-Z-L-O-F-F. Her first name, it's Sarah with an H. You can also follow Sarah on social media. She's on Facebook under Sarah Kozloff um, hyphen author. On Twitter, it's Sarah underscore Kozloff. And on Instagram, Sarah period Kozloff. In the meantime, I found out a couple of facts about her. She's a country mouse, not a city mouse. though She's very allergic to poison ivy. Her older brother read The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings aloud to her the summer she was eight. It was only decades later that she realized the role of women in this literary classic was very limited. This led her to ask, what if the return of the king had been the return of the queen? Which led to the books. So Sarah's going to read from her first novel now. Prelude during the Regency, Cascada, the capital of Weirendale. Four catamounts stalk the throne room, their black-tipped tails scribbling on ease in the stuffy air. They linger near the dedication fountain, lapping the water that spills down to the pool. Catamounts have guarded the throne for centuries. These beasts pay little attention to the guards who check the room or the women who periodically sweep the floor. If the maid is sobbing over a slap or a kick, they do not care. They do not attend to the night shrieks of prisoners in the cells, and though they can't hear the children's hungry fretfulness in the city below the palace, in any event, the catamounts would ignore their plight. People in general hold no interest to these mountain lions. They live solely for their devotion to the queens of Weirendale. But no queen has occupied the Nargis throne for more than a dozen years, not since Queen Cressa the Enchanter's terror-driven flight. Now the only thing the cats can do is sniff anyone who dares to enter the throne room, seeking a familiar scent. Their menace holds off any usurper foolish enough to attempt a coronation at the dedication fountain. Sometimes the catamounts rub against the throne's arm or leg. Sometimes they dash through the room, their tawny coats sliding over heavy muscles, chasing a beam of light or a speck of dust. On occasion, they roar to relieve their boredom and frustration. But no queen appears to take her rightful place, and the years slip by. The chair sits empty. Locked tight, the throne room shouts only stillness and quiet. The catamounts wait, their yellow eyes gleaming, lashing their tails. Hi, Sarah, and thanks for doing that reading for us. With my pleasure. We're going to jump right into the questions. Like water itself, that can come in many forms. The Queens of Werendale 
have different magical talents, unknown until a certain point in childhood. Your talents are not always grandly prepossessing. Tell us about talents some of the queens have had. Uh, well, the most common talent is enchantment, um, which is related, I think, to intuition and related to a certain amount of working on other people's minds. I can remember reading about enchanters in Robert Jordan's series. Um, so that's kind of the default talent. But there are many others. And there's an appendix at the back of the books which lists um, some of the notable queens with notable talents. There's Chista the Builder. There's Charmina the Fighter. There's Chinisa the Wise. Crylinda the Fertile is my <laughs> favorite. <laughs> There's also Katori the Swimmer. She swam across the Bay of Sinda. So um, the talents are chosen by the spirit Nargis, and Nargis chooses the talent that is most important for the challenges that the kingdom is, well, queendom is facing right at that moment. Hey, so uh, those talents aren't always obvious in the beginning. Finding mm -hmm. inner strength in times of adversity seems to be a theme of your novel. For example, Queen Cressa finds the courage to fight off a surprise pirate attack, just grabbing whatever is around, which includes a bag of muskmelons. How do some of your other characters grow? Um, I think all of the characters grow. Um, but you're uh, wise to notice that um, perseverance is a major quality. Another one of the queens is uh, Carmina the Perseverant. And her story and her example uh, becomes very important throughout the series. But the original title of the book, what, of the first book, was Hidden Talents. And I meant that not only for uh, the Princess Cerulea, but for all the characters. They all develop and find that when called upon, they have skills and abilities they didn't even really know they possessed. Well, what about the bad guys? Are they growing more evil in the course of the novel? Or? <laughs> <laughs> well, they're certainly growing. Uh, they're growing stronger. Um, Sumroth, who is an Oro, uh, rises through the ranks and becomes uh, a commander of men. Uh, Matwick, who is only a counselor, uh, becomes even more skilled at manipulating people. Um, everybody uh, comes sort of into his or her own. Yeah, I think that's what makes the novel very interesting, too, is to have characters that we can follow and see grow. But we'll talk more about that later. Uh, getting mm -hmm. back to the beginning of the novel, uh, part of it involves the Princess Cerulea, and she has some nicknames. One of them is Chickadee, and then later on she actually uses the name of Wren, Wren, like the little brown bird. 
So what do those names tell us about her character? Well, bird names become a motif throughout the series. Um, uh, chickadee is, you know, they're tiny little chirpy birds, and it's just uh, an affectionate term for a child. Um, when she adopts Wren, she's trying to be anonymous uh, and fade into the background. But in later books, I guess it's not uh, too much of a spoiler to say she takes on other bird names. She becomes a finch. Uh, she becomes a, a hawk, a kestrel. Uh, she becomes a phoenix. So um, one of the themes of the series is disguise. Uh, and uh, once she has adopted the, the name Wren, she keeps with bird names for quite a while. Yes, hidden talents are also disguised talents. Exactly. So Queen Cressa and her daughter, Cerulea, soon find themselves separated and fleeing in different directions because of a bloodless coup, or mostly bloodless, which is engineered by Lord Stuart Matwick. Matwick, who likes fine things, came from a poor background. You go to some trouble to tell us about his youth, what did Matwick learn from his mother, and how did it influence his strength? Yeah, I really wanted to give Matwick a believable backstory. Um, this is not Sauron, the, you know, incarnate of all evil. This is a man who, I would say he does have... Um, sociopathic tendencies, he, he can't feel much empathy. But mostly his path was set by the fact that his family was very poor and his mother taught him that uh, he needed to somehow steal or get luxuries in life but to do so in such a way that suspicion didn't fall on him. She sets an example of um, sort of uh, covert uh, thievery and uh, teaching him that he only has one life and he should enjoy luxuries as much as anyone else. And he takes those lessons to heart. Well, he also has a sister, and discerning readers will note that Ivy, the toy maker, who turns up in several chapters and is described in the character list only as an inhabitant of the capital city of Warrendale, is actually Matwick's sister, who has lost contact with him, or broken off contact. Do you have plans for them? Oh, yes. <laughs> Uh, there's very little in the book that um, uh, happens by chance and then just sort of fritters away. Um, Ivy is the one person that Matt Wick does feel a certain bond with. I found that sort of sad. Mm -hmm. um, and later in life, when he is at a crossroads, he dearly desires to see her uh, and have her presence. But I'm not going to tell you what happened. 
Well, so far we've only talked about Werendale, and there's so much more. Let's start with a scary place. We have the mountainous country of Oromundo. They're religious fanatics who invade other countries and draw and quarter dissenters. Is there anything good about them? I think so. Um, I think they're very uh, brave. Uh, they're very disciplined. They're very strong. Um, they're very loyal to one another. Um, so I did not intend them to be anything like orcs or um, icemen or anything like that. It's a country, though, that is suffering from blights and hunger. Um, and it is because of the deficits in the natural world that the people have become easily swayed and um, pulled into religious fanaticism. Um, and much later in book four, um, Thalen is even going to develop a certain amount of kinship and understanding of the Oros. Yes, Thelen, who is a scholar that we first meet in book one, is very interested in the actual causes of the blights in Oromundo as opposed to what the people of Oromundo are led to believe. So exactly. I look forward to reading about that too. In your series, you present us with countries ruled by theocracies, democracies, and royal rulers. Is that my imagination, or do democracies have less magic, and why would that be? Ah, well, now you're going into the backstory of the Free States. Um, mm -hmm. The Free States is the major democracy in the series, and it used to have magic, and it used to have a king. Um, but um, the people revolted. I was thinking of uh, the reign of terror after the French Revolution mm -hmm. and how um, unbelievably bloody and merciless a mob can be when it overthrows uh, an aristocracy. And after behaving so mercilessly, uh, the spirit that had adopted um, the free states um, says, I'm not going to have anything to do with these people. It just tosses them away. Um, but again, that's something that may come back later in the series. I'm just noticing the rulers do, uh, in Western society, in our actual world, of course, we have the divine right of kings where the kings, and not so much the queens, unfortunately, were the favored <laughs> vessels of divine power. So it does seem there's a little bit of an analogy there with the ruling class having divine power on their side. I, yeah, I can see how you would think that, but it uh, is more that uh, Minion, uh, he doesn't, well, the gods are supposed to be genderless. It's very hard to mm -hmm. use genderless pronouns. Minion, the spirit of Ega, doesn't particularly care about the king, uh, but the spirit is revolted by the reign of terror. 
Mm-hmm. Well, you moving on, you have a background in film, as everyone mm-hmm. read, reads your bio will see. Uh, do you think your background in film was helpful to you? Oh, absolutely. Um, there are many names and lines of dialogue <laughs> that come exactly out of movies that I've seen, or I just changed them a little bit. Uh, Nargis, the, the spirit of fresh water, is a name from Indian cinema. Um, there's a character in book four called Darsner. I was thinking of Dorothy Arsner, an early <laughs> woman director. But more generally, I think the epic scope, the uh, cutting from one country to another uh, with sort of wild abandon mm-hmm. uh, comes, from, comes from cinema. And uh, I think that um, the use of interior monologue comes from voiceover narration, which I've studied in detail and wrote a book about and is very important to me. So all those passages that are in italics and you hear the character's thought, that's me writing voiceover narration. Oh, okay. Well, most of us love movies. Uh, What are some of the better fantasy movies that you've seen and what makes them exceptional? Um. Of course, I loved Lord of the the Peter Jackson Lord of the Rings. Mm-hmm. Um, it managed to uh, capture the the grandeur and otherworldliness of the Tolkien. I think it did a, a great job of that. And uh, Viggo Mortensen was fun. Um, the Hobbits and the way they did the uh, height. Uh, difference was just so clever. Uh, the music uh, gave it this uh, fantasy feeling. Um, in terms of other films, I'm not myself a big aficionado of either Star Trek or Star Wars, but um, I do love Blade Runner. Yes, uh, that's you... amazing. Yes, and uh, I think General Sumroth is based on Rutger Hauer in Blade Runner. Mm-hmm. Yeah, with the I, white hair standing with the white hair standing straight up. You know, I'm not a big Star Wars fan either. We may be the only two people in the world, but <laughs> <laughs> I, I everybody expects me to be and I'm not and then I feel like I'm disappointing them. But <laughs> there you are. Yes. And uh perhaps we both remember the original adaptation of the Lord of the Rings, which I think was in the seventies or eighties, and so I was just oh the the, the animated one yes I, I try to I try to forget that so I was just <laughs> so happy when I saw uh, the newer Lord of the Rings, and I where I was not a big fan of Vigo in the beginning, I soon became a committed fan. <laughs> Oh, there you go. There you go. I didn't, I purposely did not go to Jackson's Hobbit series mm-hmm. um, because to me, The Hobbit is supposed to be a fairly modest little story. And I thought that blowing it up 
into three full-length films was a sort of case of elephantitis. Um, and I didn't want to think of The Hobbit as on a par with The Lord of the Rings, which to me is the much bigger and more important story. Yeah, I can confirm that. I uh, had some trouble sitting through two and three of The Hobbit with the extra storylines. Yeah. yeah. I, I do like The Hunger Games. Um, I thought they were well done. I thought Jennifer Lawrence was amazing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Stanley Tucci. Yeah. Um, so I, lo- I love the comment in The Hunger Games about spectatorship and uh, watching this grim and dark uh, story and people getting pleasure from it. So now we're moving on to grim and dark. And The Hunger Games was somewhat grim, but it was just a precursor of grimness to come (laughs) because now we have series like The Game of Thrones and we Uh actually have a descriptive term for that type of fantasy, grimdark. There has been Uh a trend towards frequent and shocking violence, sadistic characters and plots that center all about revenge, bloody revenge. How can an author write an involving, gripping novel or screenplay without resorting to those measures? Boy, that's really the problem. Um, This is something that I wrestle with because as a professor, I actually have read a great deal of the psychological literature about the effects of violence on readers and viewers. And it's not a one-to-one correspondence, nor is it um, um, easy to say, well, you watch this movie, then you go out and become, you know, a a murderer. Mm -hmm. It's not that direct. But a lot of the evidence is that the more time you spend watching violence and aggression, the more aggression gets normalized for you. And you become to a sense, in a sense, comfortably numb to all these deaths and mayhem and rapes. And I don't want to be numb and I don't want my readers to be numb. I want, so, I mean, one of the things that many novelists or filmmakers do is they make the enemy inhuman. Mm -hmm. They make enemy bugs or, um, you know, the ice death people in Game of Thrones or, you know, um, zombies or orcs. And then you can kill them off with wild abandon and yet, you don't feel like you're killing people. But that's not, um, that's a cop-out to me because you're still killing and bathing yourself in blood and working your way up to, isn't it so wonderful that I got him, I killed him. Um, So there are battles, there are deaths in the Nine Realms. Um, but by the end 
of this series. Um, Thalen, in particular, regrets them all. Um, so there's a, a working through of the problem of vengeance and the problem of violence in the series. Well, you know, I've read books about the appeal of stories, being a novelist myself, and the appeal of the stories that allows us to experience someone else's quandary without the exposure. Like if I right. read about a heroine and she's facing something, then I'm not exposed to that danger myself, but I I feel enough engagement to where I'm learning. So if we're just learning to react to a fraught situation by killing our enemy, I'm not so sure that's really a good lesson to share with our readers. Of course, we don't want to go the other way and be moralistic and heavy-handed. But right. surely there is some middle ground by just creating engaging characters in new and different worlds and having our readers care about our characters and be happy when our characters survive and find love, even in the middle of very difficult right. and trying times. And also, I think uh, what is often so disturbing in the Grimnark novels or in Game of Thrones is the mixture of violence and sex. Um, and, I mean, that kind of sadomasochistic violence uh, might provide an unusual thrill, but it's not necessary to have a, a story that um, is engaging. Um, and and that's often, I mean, I have stopped reading books when it seemed to me that that was going too far. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's a problem. Um, they say that a lot of people, I mean, we like to read about Jeopardy or death or horror films or whatever because it, we get to travel to the dark side but return in safety. Mm-hmm. Um, which I'm sure is a good thing to do a few times. I'm not sure it's necessary to do it all the time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> One can apply that terror with a light hand. Right, right. So let's talk about the publishing process. You're a professor of film history at Vassar. In your acknowledgments, you thank an impressive list of university colleagues. And I also noticed insiders on the publishing industry. Had it long been a plan of yours to branch off into writing? No, I am a true accidental novelist. (laughs) I had never planned to be a writer. I never thought of myself as a writer. I am an academic. I've been teaching for 31 years. But... Seven years ago, I started writing this series kind of on a whim, and I didn't tell any of my Vassar colleagues until after I got a contract, and then my editor, Jen Gunnels at Tor, uh, was telling me that certain elements of the series were not researched well enough, were not realistic enough. And I thought, well, 
if you want research, Jen Gunnels, I can go straight to the source. So I went to my colleagues in geography. I went to a friend at West Point. Um, it saved me a lot of time from going um, into the into the library. Um, mm-hmm. Just go to the experts. Um, but I wasn't willing to do that until after I knew that the series would be published. Yeah, that's probably, and then people, that's probably a good idea. I've noticed a lot of people jump the gun a bit when they're writing, <laughs> and it is yeah. hard to get a publishing contract. And you are one of the few that I know about, or perhaps the only one, who's on an accelerated schedule with one book being released every month. That's amazing. And it, it, it's, it's pretty unusual. I mean, it has happened before, but uh, it's not common. Well, was this your idea or Tours? Mm. No, it was Tours. It was the Jennifer Gunnels. Um, but it was her idea because I came to them with all four novels finished. I got the contract with all four novels mm-hmm. uh, because I was such a novice and and not ambitious in the field. Um, I didn't say, well, I'll write one novel, see if it gets published, and then I'll write a sequel. I wrote the whole story. So then when they bought it, they had the whole story. Um, and it wasn't, um, I mean, there were some things in production that were a little complicated, getting four books out at once. Um, but in terms of my writing them, they were done. I was, uh, you, there was no George R. R. Martin, you know, is she going to finish? <laughs> I, I, I had the end of the last chapter of the last book written. So that's how they were able to uh, do this unusual publication schedule. Well, there's an indie author who does that, too. I can't think of his last name. His first name is Michael. But he writes his three or four books at least at two, so that he can have congruence across the whole series. And I think for people mm-hmm. who can organize, that's probably the best way to go. Because as a writer and a reader myself, I can tell when someone's struggling and they're not quite sure how to get to the end, even if it it can be a great book in many ways, but I can tell that, and that is not present in your books. I feel quite sure that you know where we're going, and you're going to take us there, and I'm not going to (laughs) be disappointed, so. (laughs) Thank you. Yes, it was one of the things that made it enjoyable, and I'm looking forward to the second book. But now you've done all four books, so what are you working on now? Well, I've written another book. Um, it's not epic fantasy, um, but it's about um, 80% done. Um, and that's all I'm really comfortable saying about that. I might come back to epic fantasy uh, someday, but I think it'll sort of depend how well um, the Nine Realms does. Mm-hmm. Well, you write really fast. Do you outline first and then fill in? No. I am a full-on discovery writer. I I do write incredibly quickly. 
I don't understand people who are fretting over word counts. <laughs> um, I, I never, I never even look at my word counts because I just sit down and write and I write and write and write and write. And then eventually I have to go back and throw out a certain amount of what I've written, mm-hmm. which is, you know, a little sad, but not, not actually painful. They're not my darlings. They were just a path that I thought I was going down and then I veer back onto the main path. So I write quickly and then I revise and revise and revise and revise. Well, I'll be curious to see what comes after the four books that you're putting out now. And thanks so much for spending time with us today. Thank you, Gabrielle. Thanks for listening to us today on a New Books Network in Fantasy and Adventure. I've been talking to Sarah Kozloff about A Queen in Hiding, the first in a quarta of the Nine Realm series. Later this month, I'll be interviewed about my own YA epic fantasy, Girl of Fire. In March, I'll be talking with Carrie Vaughn about the immortal conquistador. I'm your host, Gabrielle Matthew. You can find out more about my work on my website, GabrielleMatthew.com, G-A-B-R-I-E-L-L-E-M-A-T-H-I-E-U.com. You can also follow me on Twitter to get updates about new podcasts and more. I'm there at Gabrielle Off.